Welcome to Season 2, Episode 3 of the ACID Research to Practice podcast. This episode will take you inside the ACID 2018 conference. Let's shake it up. Human rights for everyone. We're at the Gold Coast Conference and Exhibition Centre for three days of research, practice and hearing from the people with lived experience of intellectual disabilities who are involved in designing and driving the research agenda and doing the research. We'll hear brief recaps from all the keynote speakers, including Queensland self-advocates Donna Best, Paula Day and Alex Baker. Dr Bridget Murfin-Vetch of the Donald Beasley Institute, Aotearoa, New Zealand, and Professor Andrew Jahoda from the University of Glasgow, Scotland. Sophia Tipping gathered Vox Pops, so you'll hear what people thought of the other sessions. You can find more information about the keynotes and the presentation on the conference website, acid2018.com.au. For the next episode, we have a mountain of stories from self-advocates and people with an intellectual disability. They speak about what are the most important issues for them, and we found out if research is keeping up with the agenda they set. Don't miss it. But first we want to acknowledge and pay our respects to the land and the traditional families of the Ugambeh region of south-east Queensland, where the conference took place. The Gold Coast Convention and Exhibition Centre, Broadbeach, on the Gold Coast. Willie Prince, a founding member of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Disability Network of Queensland, opened the conference. You can hear Willie's story on the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Disability Network of Queensland website. We will link you to a video of his story in the show notes. Before we get started on the keynotes, here's... My name's Laura Hogan and I'm the president of ACID and it's my pleasure to welcome you to this podcast series. Enjoy listening to this, then we really hope to see you in Adelaide in 2019, which is the next ACID conference and you can find out about that on our website. Thanks, Laura. We'll go through the three days of the conference, bringing you the highlights. So let's dive in with the first keynote. Anne Fudge-Shormans, Associate Professor and Chair of Graduate Studies in the School of Social Work at McMaster University, Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Sophia caught up with Anne to get the highlights. I talked about using arts-based research methods in inclusive research with people with intellectual disabilities. Could you give us a quick example of one of the projects you've worked on that you mentioned? Yes. One of the projects was called the What's Wrong With This Picture Project. And in that project, myself and a group of adults with intellectual disabilities, we looked at 11 different public photographic images of people with intellectual disabilities. And sometimes they said, there's nothing you can do with this message or with this picture, so just get rid of it. It needs to go away. And they took different pictures to tell better stories. Can you tell us about one of the works and how the picture changed after the artist got involved? One of the pictures, and I talked about this one in the keynote, one of the images was taken by a photographer named Diane Arbus, and she had taken it at an institution in upstate New York in the 70s. And so the picture is of four or five women, I'm forgetting at the moment, and they're all dressed in these paper costumes. It's really quite ghastly. So it's black and white, very dark background behind them. They're standing in these paper costumes where they've got like these paper dresses with sort of ruffles on the bottom. They've got 
stars attached to their shoes. They're wearing masks and crowns, and they're holding these like wands with stars on them, right? And they're all in a row, and they're all smiling at the camera, um, but you can't really see their face because they're wearing masks. And so one of the group members, she looked at it, and she turned away, and she just slammed the book shut, and she just couldn't look at it. But she didn't want to let it go. She kept wanting to work with it. And so what she had us do was she had us put a picture of the KKK on top of that image. So you can still see the women's faces, like the the top parts of their body, but superimposed on that image is a black and white image of a whole group of KKK, nighttime, holding their uh, burning torches with their white hoods and the white dresses or gowns, whatever they call them. And it's shocking how similar the pictures are. And her reason for wanting to make that change was, she said, you know, when she saw that picture, it made her think of the KKK because how it looks. But she said she also wanted people to know that in the same way that the KKK represents hate, particularly towards racialized people, she said that people with disabilities experience that kind of hate and violence themselves. And she's experienced a lot of violence in her life. And she really wanted people to know that, you know, when you do these kinds of things, when you make people look like this, and this is harmful. Well, that was a great description of it. So I feel like I can visualize it. What's the main message you want people to take away from your keynote and share with others? Well, there's sort of a couple. Um, One is that using different kinds of arts methods in research with people with disabilities, where where the the co-researchers with disabilities are really actively involved in working with the art, making art, just kind of really exploring what these representations mean, creating different kinds of representations. It's really, really useful. It's a way of making meaning of their own experiences. Can you give us a call to action for listeners? It's about inclusion. It's about self-advocacy. It's about rights. It's about ensuring that, you know, we pay attention to what people say. We give them opportunities to say, we give them opportunities to do, right? I think we need to kind of continue to demonstrate that all of this matters and we have to get the world to realize that this matters. And I'm not sure they're there yet, but we'll keep trying. Now we hear from a delegate who attended the employment stream of the first concurrent session. Over to Sophia again. What were some of the memorable learnings from that session? The presentations were all different, but I think that they the kind of common theme in them was in terms of finding employment and supporting employment for people with disabilities, the need to tailor work roles to the individual's talents and interests. So, so I guess at that individual level, knowing the person, but that in itself isn't enough. That the context and the employer needs to be able to ad- adapt, adjust, change the way they do things in order for people to be included. So it's not, yeah, it's, it's your classic, you know, person in environment sort of situation. So uh, what are you going to be able to take back to where you work or where you live or your community and use from that session? I think it's um, listening to people and, and the work has to start with understanding the person and what they're interested in, what their gifts and talents are, but also then maybe what challenges they have and what supports are needed there. I think a really important message too was the need for, it's not just about finding someone a job, it's about the ongoing support and really recognising that a lot of our models are around training people up, um, graduating from some sort of process, getting a job and then that's it. You don't provide ongoing support but when someone's got an intellectual disability that is going to be part of their life forever, the support needs to be ongoing. 
Everyone was buzzing on the first day of the conference and Sophia was fresh from her presentation. She did manage to catch up with another Vox Pops. I'm here with Sonia Hume from Speak Out Tasmania, Speak Out Advocacy. Sonia, tell me what you've been up to at the conference. We did a presentation for Mainstream and Me and we're focusing on parents with an intellectual disability and the struggles that we face with mainstream services. What are some of the struggles? Well, some of the struggles is that mainstream services um, report before they support instead of supporting before reporting. What was the main message you wanted to send to people listening? The main message that I want to send to people that are listening is that parents with an intellectual disability can make capable and caring parents. Great message. And what, what should the listeners do? What action should they take? Well, the actions we should do is get more funding. <laughs> because we're actually out of funding now and, and we was just starting to scratch the surface with mainstream services and, yeah, I think that we should get funding so we can keep the project going. Um, Sonia, I wanted to know just generally what did you think of the conference this year? I thought the conference was really good. What were the highlights? The highlights would have to be everything. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a good review. Thank you, Sonia, for speaking to me. Thank you very much. Next, we get an insight into the human rights stream of the second session of day one. Sophia caught up with... Hi, I'm Ray West. I'm from RMIT University. I'm a researcher. Um, I'm here presenting at the ACID Conference 2018 this year. And our research is on um, restrictive practices and reducing the use of restrictive practices for people with disabilities. What did you just hear about in the last session you were at? Okay, well, I presented plus there was two other sessions at the same time. And the whole session basis was on human rights for people with disabilities. So my study was obviously looking at what are the strategies for the workforce that they need to develop in reducing restrictive practices and what attributes and skills and training do they need in reducing restrictive practices. And then the session after mine was also on restrictive practices, but on the specifics of mechanical restraints and the workforce identifying what they are and why they still use them and who authorises their use and sort of how are they operationalised in the support interaction. So that girl spoke about that. She was from Melbourne Uni, Catherine. And then the final one was on Queensland getting a Human Rights Act, um, which is fantastic. So Victoria's got its um, Victorian Charter of Rights and Responsibilities, but for people with a disability, it's not very strong or enforceable because it only talks about civil and political rights, whereas the Queensland Act's going to be broader and more focused, and so hopefully people with a disability in Queensland will be able to engage with the Act a lot more. Um, so yeah, so the whole session was on human rights and it was a good discussion afterwards, so lots of good questions and I've come away thinking about n- not so much the human rights one but certainly the other restrictive practices session, um, you know, the transference of some of the themes and concepts that came up in that, I'll be applying it to my research as well. Um, so it was very useful and it's got me thinking about some different elements of how we're designing the research and, and some other factors that we need to think about in our research, so that's been helpful. Thank you, Ray. We'll have to... Um hear more about your research on a future episode. <laughs> Next is Alison McLean from Queensland Disability Network. She spoke with Ben Pawson about the origins of the conference name. You're here at the ACID conference shaking up. It is called Let's Shake It Up Human Rights for Everyone. <laughs> and how did you help come up with the name? How did that happen? 
there was a group of people that met at CLA. There was me, Donna Best, and Samantha, and a few others, and we wrote down names on the board, and whoever got the most popular one, we voted for the name, and that was picked for the conference. Good stuff. So that's how we got the name of the conference. Thanks, Alison. Sophia talked with... Uh, Jim Simpson's my name, from the Council for Intellectual Disability in New South Wales. Hi, Jim. What session were you just in? I was in a fascinating session. It was just such a contrast. We heard about what the Department of Education is doing in Victoria to try to reduce the use of restraint and seclusion in classrooms. So that was a very professional sort of talk. Then we heard from the wonderful Mainstream and Me project, which is uh, carried out by various of the member organisations in Inclusion Australia, where people with intellectual disability in different ways in different states have been helping to make the community and mainstream services more inclusive of people with intellectual disability. What were the key lessons that you're, you're thinking about after that session? Well, again, it's just such a fascinating contrast. I mean, that first part, it was just the enormity of the problem of, uh, of the use of restraint and seclusion in, in schools and how, while things are happening, sort of what an enormous challenge it is to address that. In the Mainstream and Me session, it was just so wonderfully invigorating to see people with intellectual disability in different ways, uh, making employers realise that people with intellectual disability can be fantastic workers, helping to educate the uh, child protection system and the community generally about how people with intellectual disability can be great parents um, if they're given the right support. And, you know, we all need support as parents. It's, It's a hard job. Sorry, here. Yeah. <laughs> what were the key things that you're going to take away personally and, and use in your life or work or wherever you'll take it? Yeah, I've been thinking about that. As an advocate who's been involved in disability advocacy, systemic advocacy for a hell of a long time, 30 years, what I find myself having to keep learning and what I must keep learning is how to just gradually more and more step back and be on tap to people with intellectual disability for when they want my support in, the, in advocacy. That's something we're trying to do in Council for Intellectual Disability in New South Wales, and I think we're doing better and better, but we've just got to keep going and keep getting better at it, and uh, people like me need to sort of uh, gradually uh, bow out. Put yourself out of the job. <laughs> Thank you, Jim. No worries, Sophia. It's a pleasure. Next, a brief glimpse into the concurrent session on effective services. I'm here on day one of the ACID 2018 conference after concurrent session three. And I'm here with Brent. Tell me, Brent. Tell me where you come from. I'm a PhD student at the University of Melbourne. What session were you just in? I was in the session uh, titled Effective Services and I was the first presenter and then we had two more presenters, but I wanted to talk about the last presenter who was um, Matthew Spicer. Okay. Tell us, what was the main thing you took away from Matthew's presentation? It was probably a confirmation really than anything else. He was showing some data from a survey of behaviour support practitioners and 41% of those practitioners were not accredited or regulated by a professional body, which is quite concerning when we're talking about interventions for people who are, who are quite vulnerable. Yes, it is. Brent, how are you going to take this away and use it in your work or life or community? 
I've always been quite critical of standards for behaviour intervention and behaviour support, and I'm going to I'll I'll use this in arguing for um, a higher standard of competencies for behaviour support practitioners. Day one concluded with drinks and networking, which was a very vibrant session, punctuated by musical entertainment from Bernard. We'll hear from him in the upcoming bonus episode devoted to the stories told by self-advocates at our storytelling booth at the conference. But before the day ended, Sophia caught up with Jack and Susan. Hi, my name's Jack Kelly. I work for the the New South Wales Council for Intellectual Disability and I also work for... uh, the Centre for Disability Studies um, in Sydney as well. What session have you seen today that you remember? So I saw a session on like the transition of like a group home and then not being able then not being given a choice of who they would want to move into after that institution closed down, so... This was in, like, historical... Yes. What did you learn? It just gave me a broader spectrum of, well, we're in 2018 and we haven't reached the point where people have been given the option to um, move in with certain housemates. Yeah. So what are you going to take away from that? What are you going to take into your life and your work? I think just to make sure in my life to make sure that I do get a choice and I'm happy with the people that I am living with and if I'm ever in that position for a professional level I would make sure that I would ask did you make did you have a say in who you got to live with Susan spoke about the session on quality checkers a program by the Centre for Disability Studies at Sydney University, where people with intellectual disability work with organisations to check different aspects of service quality. Susan was impressed by their model. Hello, I'm here with Susan. Susan, where do you work? I don't work anymore, I'm retired. What sessions have you seen today? Quality checkers. Tell me about quality checkers. The quality checkers they do um, check people on people with disability. They ask questions and ask different sort of questions too. They ask all type of questions. What do you think is useful about quality checking? Because they help for people for for life of disability to go on to the checkers. Day two was more glorious sunshine and two keynotes back to back. 
We heard from Professor Monica Cuskelly, Professor Chris Hatton, and a group of self-advocates, Paul O'Day, Donna Best, and Alex Baker. But first up, Professor Andrew Jehoda, who is Professor of Learning Disabilities at the University of Glasgow. Sophia met up with him after his keynote. My opening line was about a cyclist at the top of the inaccessible pinnacle on the island of Skye. It was inspired by the wonderful daredevil tactics of the advocacy group that were, um, I think, climbing down? No, not climbing down. Abseiling. Thank you very much for helping me with my word-finding problems. We're abseiling down a, a, an extraordinary dam in um, Tasmania. So that was the inspiration from my opening and that was from the opening of the conference? Yes, that was at the opening of the conference. They played a, a very inspiring video about trying things out and giving it a go. So I thought I'd have to show there are a few daredevils in Scotland as well. <laughs> it's a great opening. Tell us a little bit about what we heard at your keynote address. In my keynote address, I tried to make the point really to start off with that actually people with intellectual disabilities have tended to be left out of the attempts to gather evidence about what works for people in terms of addressing mental health problems. So I talked a bit about how we'd adapted a psychological therapy called behaviour activation, which is about getting people who are depressed to start to build their lives up again a little bit more, to bring them in touch with things that are going to bring meaning and purpose to their lives again, and how we compared that to another intervention, a guided self-help intervention, which is about learning to understand about the kind of problems you might get if you're depressed. It's about sleep, about being active, about problem solving, and understanding what depression is. So we compared those two interventions, one about doing more and one about understanding more. And we'd hoped when we started off the study that there would be a difference in what happened. But actually, what we found was that over the time people got these therapies, their depression reduced and it stayed reduced for the year we followed people up for. So in some ways, our study was a terrible failure because we showed no difference. But in other ways, we felt, well, we showed we could deliver two therapies that were associated with good outcomes and that people were not harmed by this process at all and benefited from it. What about a, a call to action or a shift that you're hoping to get people here to go out and do or think? Okay, okay. My call to action, I think, would be to try and ensure that health and social care services are geared up and are going to respond to people when people are feeling depressed or feeling anxious and that people are not going to just be referred for challenging behaviour always, that other emotional needs are going to be taken seriously too. And that means changing the system as well. But it also, I guess, means educating people with learning disabilities, family members and other support services too, to be aware of the mental health of the people they support and, and realise that they may be needing help with other things from time to time, for example, when behaviour changes. Links to the speakers' bios titles of their talks and the other sessions from the conference are all available on the conference website, acid2018.com.au. Next up, Sophia pinned down Professor Chris Hatton, Professor of Psychology, Health and Social Care at Lancaster University in the UK. Chris, tell us, what was your opening line today for your keynote? 
wasn't quite the opening line, but I did show people where I live in the Lake District and how deeply confused I am by the sunshine and heat of the Gold Coast. Yes, I remember that. It's quite a contrast. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about what you talked about today. I talked about the health of people with, in, with intellectual disabilities. I talked about what we've been doing in England in particular. I talked about how we've got a lot better information about people's health, but the information that we've had hasn't, I don't think, convinced people that the state of play is so unfair for people with intellectual disabilities. So I talked about how we need to do more together to really convince people of the injustice of this and to do something. Could you tell us a bit more about what has been happening in the UK? We've been working as part of what's called an, an observatory since 2010, so we've been using that to really get a lot more information about people's health. We can say much more about how people in different local areas compare to each other, so people can get information about their area and say, hey, our area is not as good as your area, what are you going to do about that? We've also done more about trying to understand why the health of people with intellectual disabilities in general is so much worse. So people are more likely to be poor, less likely to be in kind of nourishing relationships, less likely to be uh, in employment, those kinds of things. And all those are the kind of things which make us all ill. Mm, okay. So is there some kind of key message that you are hoping everybody listening on the podcast and in session today, you wanted them to walk away with? Yeah, I think that the poorer health that people experience is a profound injustice. It's a result of systematic institutional di discrimination and it's absolutely something that we can change, but we can only change it together. And I think we can only really change it if people with intellectual disabilities really lead that process. So what can the listeners and the people at the conference, the delegates, take away and do? What's the call to action? I think there's also a big thing, which I think in Australia, as in England, I think we really need some kind of national task force to really look at this properly. And I think that can and should be led by people with intellectual disabilities to really poke their noses in where people don't want them to poke their noses in, really find out what's going on and really work out how to make big scale change. The morning concurrent session was when things really turned up a gear. There were some really lively presentations teaching people with intellectual disabilities about the end of life with Roger Stancliffe and Michelle Weiss. And the interesting session Namira told Sophia about. So it's day two of the ACID 2018 conference and we've just had the concurrent sessions, um, the fourth concurrent session for the conference. And I'm here with Namira. Do you want to introduce yourself? Thank you, Sophia. My name's Namira. Um, I'm both a researcher with the University of Newcastle, but I'm also a mum with a daughter with an intellectual disability, so I'll wear a couple of different hats. The um, sessions that I've just been to are around dual disability and the wellbeing group program for women with intellectual disability, particularly around domestic violence and sexual assault, and also the Women Intellectual Disability and Access to Mental Health Services with Erin Whittle. They were great programs and really good to hear about the work that Jane Barrett's doing. What were the key things you took away, the key learnings you took away from that session? That there are some great programs going on around Australia, so it's actually just being here and finding out about those, which is really good. Also that there are programs that help facilitate empowering people with an intellectual disability, um, and particularly women with an intellectual disability. That's some um, important work to be done. Uh, as you're saying, but I wanted to know from your perspective, Namara, 
What are you going to take away and use from that session in your life or your work or whatever it may be? Well, one thing I'm keen to do is to actually link my website, which is Disability Maternity Care, to the the Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault Service, so to um, point other people in the right direction for services that are available or to uh, for resources and training, but also looking at how I can perhaps implement through my work some action research and actually empowering and engaging a young group of women themselves to sort of take charge and actually do some um, research themselves in this particular area. So that's exciting. The first keynote of the afternoon came from a group of self-advocates. I'm here with ACID keynote speaker, Paul O'Day. Paul, tell us, what was your opening line yesterday? Uh, My opening line was, I was born in New Zealand and went into foster care and moved back over to Australia in 1992. My keynote address was about myself advocacy throughout my life since I've left home. So I left home at the age of 19 and I moved into my own place um, through a housing cooperative that a few of us set up and run and manage our own housing. So, yeah. What was that organisation called? It's called Independent Youth Housing Group and it's been going since 1989 so well next year would be our 30th year wow yeah no it's great yeah we get to have a say in in what we in how we manage our own units and stuff and we've bought probably four units of out of our own funds that's so cool i spoke about myself advocacy with acid because I became a, a board director in 2016, so this is my third year of being on the board. So, and I've re-nominated to become to go again for the next three years. So, yeah. I wanted to ask you from your keynote, what was the key message you wanted to send to the delegates and the people listening to the podcast as well? I guess. My message would be is that you can try and do anything you can put your mind to and you have to try and stand up for yourself Um, because I was bullied by a group of friends as well so that took a couple of years to kind of, you know, sort itself out and yeah, so that so I guess my main message was about bullying and how to prevent that from, from happening to other people. What can people do to prevent that? Make sure you tell someone as soon as possible, you know, yeah. Um, and that can be pretty hard sometimes to do. I'm here with Donna Best who did the keynote address on the second day. She's going to start by telling us her opening line, if that's okay, Donna. My story was about this history of self-advocacy in Queensland. Um, I spoke about a group of people who went from Chandler Centre, which is a big, was a big institution in Ipswich. They went down to Wagga Wagga to a conference 
on people with intellectual disabilities and it was the first time that a group of people went out of Challenger Centre to it. What else did you talk about in your keynote about your career as a self-advocate? I talked about in 1985 they had another conference and I said the winding road of the advocacy. Then I talked about 1987 when Queensland Advocacy was incorporated, was formed and before that I talked about how Sufi was formed which is speak up for you, yeah. Donna, do you have a, a, a message that people can take away and do something about, take action on? I would like to see all, nor, as I call normal people, be on the side of a person with an intellectual disability. A person with an intellectual disability, if they have the right support, can do anything they want. And that's what I want. Also, I've just been working with Saru, which is the Self-Advocacy Research Unit in Victoria, on the project to get people with intellectual disabilities on the website. I've been doing that project. And now we hear from Alex Baker. Alex, do you want to tell us where you work and where you're a self-advocate? So I work uh, for the Endeavour Foundation, which is an organisation that offers opportunities to people with special needs. They also do fundraising to uh, provide support for people with special needs. I'm an advocate with the Queenslanders with Disability Network. And so recently we just finished a project where we were actually delivering workshops to participants with intellectual disability and their families um, about the NDIS and um, how to get their plans ready and so they know what their life for the future. What I think is very crucial for other people to have the opportunities I've, I've had is um, you know, to basically find out about uh, sporting organisations for people with special needs, start up sport, develop presentation skills. I recently finished my certificate three in business and administration, and I reckon a lot of other people if they, with an intellectual impairment, if they do the same thing, it can open up a lot of doors for them. Great, and that sounds like it's the main message you wanted to send to the people at the conference here. Absolutely, and I'd like other people here to actually build on that and, um, you know, actually incorporate into their studies, into their professions. You know, some of what not only myself but Paul and Donna have said, you know, um, about what we do and um, what we'd like for the future, and I think, you know, in other people's professions, if they incorporate that, then hopefully people with disabilities generally will have a much better, much richer life and society will, will be more equal and evenly spread. Next we had a keynote from Professor Monica Koskelly, Associate Head of Research at the University of Tasmania. She spoke to Sophia just before her presentation. My talk is primarily focused on the aspirations that people hold for young adults with intellectual disability or feel that young adults might hold for themselves. So it's about those aspirations, it's about some of the barriers that they see and, and also the differences between people's views about what might be possible for the futures of young adults with intellectual disability. Fascinating. If you were to take from your, your talk today the key message you want people to walk away with, what, what would you say that is? Well, it's a bit embarrassing really because in some ways my key message, the message that I plan to end on, is not directly related to the data that I'll be presenting. So this is going to cause me a little hiccup in my presentation, but I, I want people to start thinking about how we develop, particularly in people who are less 
capable, a, an enduring sense of self, because that really relates to things like self-determination and that development of aspirations. You know, how do we know, how do we develop in somebody that sense of themselves as an enduring entity that's, who's going to get older and so that the decisions that they make now will, be imp will have an impact on that older self. It's a quite a complex problem, really. In terms of what you're presenting on today, what's the call to action or the shift in thinking you're trying to inspire? What I'll be talking about is the different perspectives that these different groups who are influential in the lives of people with intellectual disability have on their aspirations, both by what they encourage, I guess, as an idea of what is possible, and then the skills and opportunities that are developed along the way for individuals. So I think that's something that I really want people to think about and the how they might deal with conflicts between the various groups and their various views. But again, it always comes back to the individual and so knowing what the individual wants and then how do we develop that idea that somebody wants something and can work towards it. Back to the conference and the end of day two, which finished with the social dinners, which were in different restaurants around Broadbeach, with one or more of the keynotes. Lots of robust conversations and a few wines. It's surprising that on Friday morning the energy is still so high. You'll hear summaries from Kathy Ellum and Vox Pops from the early career researchers. First off, Sophia talks with Bridget Murfin Vetch. So we're here on the final day of the 2018 ASSET conference, and I'm sitting with Bridget Murfin Vetch. Bridget, what was your first line? What was the opening line of your keynote address? Tinakoto katoa. Oh, okay. And then I went on and said, ko paparoa te moanga, ko ototutu te awa, ko te Murfin iwi, ko Bridget Murfin Beach aho. And so what all that means is it's a way of introducing yourself and um, according to Māori custom. And what it meant was, hello, that I grew up at the foot of the Paparoa mountain range beside the rough river in the Murfin family um, and that my name is Bridget Murfin Beach. It's beautiful. <laughs> Thanks. So you gave a wonderful keynote this morning. Tell us, in summary, what you spoke about. In summary, what I spoke about was how to translate research into practice. And so while I drew on research, I used key findings of the research to illustrate how we had tried to make a difference in Aotearoa, New Zealand, in terms of people's access to justice. And we've particularly focused on people's kind of journeys through the legal system or legal matters and have been thinking about ways in which people can be more active and effective participants in the legal matters that concern them. In your keynote, you spoke of an example. I'm not sure if you're able to speak about that, but a particular person. Yeah, yeah. So um, obviously the identity of that person was, um, you know, names were changed and some identifying features. But the, the key aspect of the story, that really simple strategies about listening to the person, taking the time to hear about their lives and experiences and, and really to ask them and to involve them. The, the point I was making with that example was that in that situation, the person wasn't seen as having the ability to contribute and to talk about what had happened for them in this particular situation. What that led to was a situation where she had 
ended up in a situation that could perhaps been, have been avoided, um, in my view, almost undoubtedly would have been avoided if someone had have listened to the full situation that had happened for that person. So to not put a too fine a point on it and not listening to the person, you know, she potentially missed out on a credible defence that could have been put, put forward. So a lot at stake. Quite a lot at stake. And so the, in using that this morning, it was, you know, it's a really powerful example, but also an example that just illustrates that we don't have time not to do these things well. So often people don't apply best practice because they think they don't have time. But in actual fact, if you want to do the best for people and get closer to achieving you know, access to justice for people, then we don't, we don't have time not to. Another thing you mentioned in your keynote that might be good to say on the podcast as well is you're using different terminology to what we use here and you, you gave a great little anecdote. Could you share that with us? I did feel like I needed to address it. I do and did use the term learning disability and I know that's contentious and there's all sorts of ideas around it but essentially what it comes down to for me is in Aotearoa, New Zealand, um, Ngā Tangata Tuatahi, People First New Zealand have expressed a preference for the term learning disability. They've been quite clear and quite vocal about that and the Donald Vesey Institute made a decision some years ago to respect that terminology and I also said that um, <laughs> I... Uh, am a non-voting kind of informal member of the People First National Committee and we had a conversation at the last meeting and people would have been very upset with me if I'd changed <laughs> my use of the, the language for this conference. Well, there you go. It's on the podcast now, so everyone can listen and know you did what they asked. Next, we hear from the final keynote of the conference. I'm sitting down with Cathy Ellum, one of the asset keynotes. Cathy, tell me, what was the opening line of your keynote address this morning? Oh my goodness, how do I do this clicker? (laughs) (laughs) I think that was it, I'm not sure, but I really had a lot of trouble trying to work out how to move the slides, but I eventually got there, so that was good. Oh, that's good. (laughs) Could you give us a bit of a summary about what your keynote was about? I was being a bit old-fashioned maybe, I was advocating for a relationship-based practice for people with cognitive disability who are enmeshed in the criminal justice system. So I was just kind of really trying to come back to the basics in terms of being able to be attentive and be purposive in the way we work with people, but also to look at it in terms of relationships, not just with the individual, but relationships between services and between systems. What was the key message you wanted the audience and and now people in podcast land to walk away with? Don't lose sight of relationship. I think um, we can get so bogged down in risk assessments and procedural stuff that we lose sight of relationship. And it's difficult. We need to slow down. We need to slow down our practice so that we can actually really try to listen to people's true message and really try to understand where they're coming from and to be able to also discuss that and be transparent and be able to describe the work that you do that is relationship-based so that, you know, government bodies can actually understand what's needed and therefore resource it a bit better than they are doing at the moment. So is there another call to action that we can take on board from your keynote? 
Call to action. Well, I think maybe it's just even the next time you're working with somebody, are you really listening? That's simple. That's simple. One final roundup and a glimpse into the future directions of research with some of the established and early career researchers that presented at the conference. I'm here on day three of the ACID conference and tell me who you are. Uh, I'm Sally Robinson from the Centre for Children and Young People at Southern Cross Uni. What sessions have you seen that were memorable? Uh, I've just come out of an early career researcher session, which has made me really think about how valuable it's been to have so many early career researchers and PhD students here at this conference. It's been so exciting. And so as I was sitting there, I was looking through the program and looking at just how many we've had at this ACID conference and thinking about how valuable it is having early career researchers and their excitement and their enthusiasm, and particularly for this conference, the arts-based methods that they're really focusing on, and so many of them are focusing on, is making it really inviting for people with uh, intellectual disability to be involved in the research in a whole lot of different ways. The self-advocates who are here can engage with those presentations, for one thing. Uh, I think it's been really wonderful to have a community of early career researchers and and PhD students here and uh, I think there's just been such a great range of topics here there's you know there's been Sophia Tipping's work about voting Uh, Lisa Hamilton's work about meanings of home was amazing it was just such extraordinary research Gina Andrews work about institutions and the policy legacy of institutions was sensational Danielle Natara and Ellen Fraser-Barber just talked about their arts-based methods. Erin Whittle's work about mental health and Bronwyn Newman's work about mental health. And there's so many other people who I'm not even going to mention, but it's just, it's been a standout for me, this conference. That's great. And I should mention that Lisa Hamilton has a podcast episode devoted to her PhD research. So if listeners are interested, they can find that. I think it's in season one. So that was a very brief run-through of the 2018 ACID Conference, Shaking It Up, Human Rights for Everyone. The conference in 2019 is in Adelaide and should be just as exciting. We hope to see you there. We'll end with two of the local self-advocates and the local conference convener, Maury O'Connor, who made an impression on everyone at the conference. The Pepsi boy met the Pepsi girl They live in a Pepsi rat They have a Pepsi cat That ate the Pepsi rat Because it had the Pepsi fat Pepsi This episode was produced by Ben Pawson Sophia Tipping, Buffy Gorilla and Hilary Johnson A big thank you to everyone who made the conference and this episode possible Thanks to the ACID Board, Local Conference Organising Committee Leishman Associates and the many conference sponsors. And an extra special thank you to the speakers and delegates who shared their thoughts with us. You can subscribe to the Acid Research to Practice podcast via iTunes, Stitcher or anywhere you find good podcasts. Keep up to date with all things Acid on Twitter via the handle at acid underscore limited on Facebook via acid.asn.au or better yet, become a member and enjoy access to a number of publications and benefits. Just go to our website, acid.asn.au. Have you enjoyed the acid conference? Yes, I have. What did you like about it? 
nice food. It was very good food. Was there anything else you liked? No. Thank you, Susan. Did you want to say anything else before we finish? I like the Gold Coast. <laughs>